If you have a Bible with you, I want to ask uh, you to turn uh, in it to Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you do not have a Bible with you, there uh, should be one in the seat in front of you, uh, right there at the bottom of it. And, uh, uh, and in that Bible, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is on page 571. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we would love for you to take that as a gift. Uh, we would love for you to have that. So uh, if you would, uh, let's bow, let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you today recognizing, uh, believing um, that you are who you say that you are. Uh, you um, have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. You have, Lord, revealed yourself to us um, in creation. Um, but God, most importantly, you have revealed yourself in your Son. And we are amazed, Jesus, at what you have made available for us. We pray that as we read your word, that you would give us the ability to believe that it is true. That you would help us to understand what it means and that you would help us to apply it to our life. God, so many years ago, you promised Moses that you would help him to speak and that you would show him what to say. And I pray according to your mercy that you would be faithful to us and to me this morning as you were with him. So God, would you be our teacher? We love you. We look to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Sunday and next, uh, we want to uh, dive into a short uh, two-week series on evangelism called Leverage. Um, it's birthed really from a passion in our hearts, uh, not just ours, but as a church family, uh, for God to use us, to leverage us, to, to, to use us to introduce more people to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And the idea, though, about evangelism, you know, it really does cause many people to stir with emotions that are not all that pleasant. Uh, in fact, if, 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 if the thoughts or feelings of regret or guilt or perhaps fear uh, at the very word or the idea uh, or the application of the sermon or... or um, uh, brings those things to your heart, you need to know that you're in really good company. You are, you are not alone. Um, I, I know that I feel these things. In fact, this um, last month, uh, probably five or six weeks ago, um, I was at the gym. And there's a guy who uh, is at the gym. He works there. And I've uh, started to talk with him. And, and, uh, and on this day, I'm driving to the gym. And I just feel like the Lord said, you know, this is going to be your day. You, you need to share with him. And so, and so I was ready. And I you know, worked out, and finished, got dressed. And I was about to head back out. And I see him at the desk. And the desk is literally like five feet from the front doors. And, um, and so I, I, I planned to stop, talk with him. And, and as I'm walking to him, all of a sudden, this cloud of fear just kind of envelops me. And, and I, I walk right past him. I say, I say goodbye. I walk right past him. And I walk out the doors. And I walked to my car, and, and then all of a sudden, um, that, that feeling of fear was replaced with a feeling of guilt and regret. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I should go back. And so literally, I stopped walking. I'm right in the middle of the parking lot. I'm just standing there. And I turn around, and I walk right back in. And he's looking at me. And I said, you saw that, didn't you? He goes, yeah, I saw that. I goes, that was weird, wasn't it? He goes, yeah, it really was weird. <laughs> he said, what? He goes, what? What's up? And I said, well, look, I said, I feel like um, God wants me to tell you something. 
uh, and it's about him. And, uh, and I was afraid to tell you. And he goes, well, what is it? And, uh, and so I shared with him uh, briefly, and, and he's not quite there, but we're uh, talking, which is great. But the, but the fact is, is, is the regret of missed opportunities that we feel and the fear of telling people in our culture about the exclusivity of Jesus and his claims, it's real. I experience both. We all do. And so I promise you, Dave O, who will be here next week with, with, uh, with all of us, and I this week, we do not come with a rod, but with a hope that God is going to do something in our life, that he's going to help us accomplish that which he has commissioned us to do. And so if you um, are at Isaiah chapter 6, um, This is what he says, starting in verse one. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And so here in this text, these eight verses this morning, I want to show you four uh, reasons why you and I should not only believe in Jesus Christ, but also have the courage to tell other people about Christ. And then next week, Dave O will actually be here to uh, walk us through several practical um, uh, things of how we go about sharing the gospel in our culture today. And so the first, if you want to take notes, is this this morning. Why should we believe and share the gospel? First is because God is incomparably holy and worthy of all praise. He is incomparably holy and worthy of all praise. Isaiah begins writing chapter 6. And it's interesting that he intentionally includes the setting of what's taking place within the culture. In verse 1 it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now this King Uzziah was actually a pretty good king in uh, He was actually a really good king when you compare him to most of the other kings. Um, in fact, even the Bible itself in First Kings and in Chronicles says of him, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of, of God, which is, which is an incredible compliment. And he reigned for 52 years. And so most of the people of Israel, he was the only king that they had ever known. And so it was a time of instability, perhaps, but it's also a time that really highlighted something, and that is that there's one true king. You see, the tragedy of King Uzziah is that he, uh, he had 50 years of faithfulness, but a 52-year reign. And what that means is it didn't end so well. And we're told that when he became an older man and near the end of his reign, 
says that pride began to, to, to find a safe place in his heart. He became arrogant so much so that one day he decided that he had the authority to barge into a part of the temple where only priests were permitted to go and to burn incense on an altar that, priest, that only the priests were permitted to burn. We're told that 80 priests run into the temple in order to pull the king out of the temple where he did not belong, where God forbid any man but the priest should go. And we're told that there in the midst of the temple, King Uzziah argued with the 80 priests over his merit to be there. Until the Bible says that God struck Uzziah the king with leprosy on his forehead. And all of a sudden, all the priests take two steps back. And the king knew something was wrong. And he says that when he understood he had leprosy, he ran out. And one of the sad realities of King Uzziah is that he spent the last two years of his life in secluded isolation in an apartment alone. Forbidden from engaging in corporate worship with the rest of the nation until he died as a leper because of his pride. Now, it's really interesting that Isaiah wants us to know that this vision took place at that point in time. And I believe why he did is because he wants us to understand that there are many kings and there is the king. There's many kings that are going to come and go and they're going to rule nations and then they're going to come and they're going to die. And every one of those kings is going to have to stand before God Almighty. There's a lot of kings. There's a lot of leaders. There's a lot of rulers. But there's one true king. And it's in this context that Isaiah sees him. He says, I saw the Lord. And it says three things of what he saw. He says, I saw him sitting on a throne. Second, he was high and exalted. And third, it says that the train of his robe filled the whole temple. Now, this was in fulfillment even of what Solomon had prayed. You see, Solomon, the king, years before this, had built this temple as a place of worship to God. And when the whole temple had been constructed, he had a service to dedicate it. And there in the middle of his prayer of dedication of the temple, Solomon said, behold, the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. It is remarkable that Isaiah doesn't even talk about the magnitude of God himself, just the hem and the train of his robe that filled the entire temple. But then he says that above the Lord were, were, were seraphs. Now, seraphs is only used in Isaiah chapter 6. Most of the time, it's translated angels or cherubim. But seraphs actually means burning one. In other words, when Isaiah was here in this picture, seeing the incomparable greatness and glory of God, there are angels that are lit on fire. That's what he sees. They are literally burning. And it says that they have six wings and two, they cover their eyes because of the glory that they're uh, um, seeing in God. With two, they're having to cover their feet because they, there's a sense of humility to be in that place and presence. And with two, they're flying around serving the Lord and they're singing a song. And the song is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
Now, the word Lord of hosts, we actually have a song. It's a modern day song that he is the God of angel armies. Okay, the host is the host of angels. And what he's saying is what these seraphs are saying, holy, 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 you are the Lord of all things, including every angel, every seraph that burns in worship to him. Now, in Hebrew language, repetition is a form of superlative. And, it, 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 um, and so what we don't find is an attribute of God normally where there's a word like really, like he's really holy or super loving, right? And the reason is because what they normally do is they just stack up the same word more than once in order to, to, to really affirm, look, it, it's not just different. He's not just set apart and holy. He's holy, holy. And in this case, what they do is they, they stack it up three times. And so this is what's happening when these angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If you've ever seen like a weightlifter in like the Olympics or, or, or at your gym, um, if you go to a gym and, and they have too much weight on or they have an, a, a whole lot of weight. Or there's a bar and there's all these, all these plates on each side and they're going down and they're coming back up. And at the end of a round, maybe the seventh or eighth time that they've gone up and down, they, all of a sudden they're, their legs, their knees, their back, they start kind of trembling and shaking and, and trying to get it one more time. They're straining under the weight that's been placed upon them. Sometimes even the bar itself will bend because of the weight that's placed upon the bar. Well, if you can think about that and then think about this idea, okay? And that is that just like a weightlifter straining under too much weight, so words in our language they tend to buckle and sometimes even break under the pressure that we ask them to carry when they're trying to communicate and describe the reality of God and his greatness and his holiness. And so there's this poor word like holy, and it's supposed to communicate the greatness and the splendor and the glory of God, who he is. And the word holy is like well, it's like this. It's like an egg and a vice, right? You, 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 this poor little egg is the word holy and the vice is the greatness of God. And every time the angels are thinking about a different attribute of who he is, all of a sudden they turn the vice and there's too much pressure upon that word of what it's trying to communicate. And so what they do is they just start stacking the same word up on each other. He's holy, Holy, holy. They could have said it eight, nine, ten times. But in the language, like if you wanted to make a significant point, you would, you would say the word three times in a row. And so here, looking upon God's absolute perfection, these angels begin crying out, you are holy. It means you are set apart. You are certainly other than us. You see, many of us think that God is sort of a supreme us, a glorified us, a perfect us. And he's not. He is not like us. We were created in his image, not he in ours. He's not a superhuman. He is God. He is wholly other than us. And his perfection is binding down upon these holy angels, these sinless angels, and they have to scream and shout to each other about the greatness of God. But then all of a sudden they see the piercing glory that, uh, that, 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 that comes from the face of God that illuminates every dark corner of heaven and all of a sudden they need another word. They've already exhausted the first word, holy. 
And then all of a sudden, they're reminded of God's eternal nature. Psalm 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. They recognize here at this time that, that, that all created minds, your mind and my mind, like we look backwards in time as far as we can go and we look forwards in time as far as we can imagine till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion and God is at both points unapproached by either. And they need another word. How do I? Uh, holy, holy, holy. They're reminded that God is infinite, that he's incomparable in all of his attributes, immeasurable in his qualities. They can't say, well, he's super holy. He's really holy. He's excitingly holy. And so they just have to keep using the word holy. And then they're reminded of the depth of God's incredible love that in the face of human rebellion and sin is that God would send his own son to redeem us, to rescue us. We're even told in the writings from Peter, it says that the angels literally, it's it's almost like there's a fence and there's a hole in the fence and they're taking turns looking through the hole to imagine how in the world did God create a new people out of a sinful people? It says that they're, they're, they're longing to look into these things of how in the world did the love of God do this? And here in this place, Isaiah sees the angels. He sees God and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When he says the whole earth is full of his glory, one of the implications is that everything on the earth should worship this God. He's worthy of all worship and all praise. Like we are told in Psalm 148, where he says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. And praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. And he gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures and all deeps fire and hail, snow and mist and stormy wind, each fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them all praise the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see, One of the reasons that we need to be telling people about Jesus is because Jesus is incomparably holy and literally worthy of their worship, worthy of their praise. Do you know there are over 16,000 people groups on the earth and God deserves the worship of every one of them. He deserves the worship of all of them. Psalm 117 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him all peoples. And the fact is, is many people do not praise the Lord because they do not know the name of the Lord. They do not know the gospel. And so God gives to us a commission. And he says, church, this is why you're created to glorify me by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and to help them to grow to love and worship him. That's what we're about. You see, 
Even in my own life, when I look at Isaiah 6, there's been times in my life where I thought, you know, I would probably be more passionate about all this if I had this kind of a vision. Like if I could see these sorts of things. And many of us perhaps wonder, man, you know, like does God really reveal himself to other people still today, like in Isaiah chapter 6? The fact is, is he's not done that to me. But I can tell you this. There's been some things in my past where it is absolutely there is no way for me to justify in any other way that what took place in my life is God revealed himself to me. And in each one of those of you who already know Jesus as Savior and Lord, there's probably a time in your life, in fact, there was a time in your life, where God revealed himself to you, where you saw a sense of his greatness, his honor, his glory, and you saw maybe your sin and and you repented and you believed in Jesus. When I was 16 was one of the first times that I remember that God revealed himself to me specifically. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a faithful woman. They still are. And, and so I had heard the gospel. I just didn't believe because I had not seen the greatness of Christ myself. When I was 16 years old, I'm watching a basketball game. There's a guy named Hank Gathers. And Hank Gathers died on the basketball court that night. I'm watching ESPN and I'm looking at it. And I played sports and... And, 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 and I was confronted that very night of the fact that life is so brief. What it, and I started to think, what is the purpose of life? I, I love sports and, and was successful in sports and successful in school and various things. And yet my heart was, 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 was devastated with hopelessness all the time. And I thought, God, how... What is life about? And that night, I I don't know what it was. I was in my room after that. And I got down on my face before the Lord. And I said, God, I believe. I didn't see him with my eyes. But I I just believed that he was in that room with me. and And he changed my life that night. And I said, Christ, I believe that you are the Lord. You died and rose again. I believe I'm a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and give me your righteousness. And I believe he did. I remember that night and that was a tangible thing. And each one of us who are going to be sharing the gospel need a tangible time when God revealed himself to us powerfully. Another one in my life came three years later when I was 19 years old. I was in college. I went to Zimbabwe, Africa, and I had a terrible speech impediment. It was a Saturday night when we landed and the missionary met us. He said, tomorrow's Sunday. And he looked right at me and he goes, what's your name? And I said, my name is Brian. And he goes, you're going to preach tomorrow morning. Of course I am, you know, and, and I stayed up all night and, I, and, and I, was, I was terrified. I was petrified and yet I knew I was going to have to do it. I just figured maybe I could weasel my way out of it. And, and I, I, all I could do was pray and I'd say, God, I'm begging you. I'm begging you not so much that you would save my reputation because these people don't even know me. But these people, for some of them, this is the first time that they're going to hear the gospel. Would you do a miracle for their good? And all I can tell you is that next morning is the power of God showed up to me in a different way than he had ever before. And that day the Lord took it away. I remember that. And so there are times when, when like all of us need that memory. Isaiah needed this memory later in life because eventually Isaiah would literally be sawn in two pieces out of persecution because he was relentless to talk about this God. He believed it was a message that was worth his life. 
over and over, we, we look back upon a time when you see the faithfulness of God. You know, what's interesting is even, even when we have those experiences, there are times when, when, when darkness kind of covers our heart. And sometimes even though we know the Lord, we know, the Lord, we know that we know the Lord, we know that we're a Christian, there are times when we're just begging, God, I just need, to, just need you to do it again. See, I, I need to see your glory again. Be totally honest with you. This week was one of those times. On Tuesday and on Wednesday of this week, I don't know, I can't really explain it other than there was just a prevailing darkness that seemed to just fill. And I, I had a hard time talking to people. I, I, was, I was so troubled in my heart and I didn't know why. And, 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 and his word was, was, it was, it was good, but it was sort of like crackers. I, I just, I'd read it and think, oh, all right, whatever, you know? And, and, and I knew I was going to be preaching this Sunday night. God, I need you to do something. And literally, I was just so devastated for those two day, days that I couldn't hardly even talk to my wife. Thursday morning, I woke up and, uh, and I went down to my office and I said, God, I, I've asked you now, for two days. You're the only person I can talk to for the last two days. I've asked you to do this and I'm, I'm asking you, I need you to do this now. Where do I look in your word where you're going to show up and where I'm going to be able to, to be with you? I need that now. I went to second Timothy and it literally, it went from black and white to color. It was an amazing thing. Isaiah needed that. We need that. I say that because one of the wonderful things that if you are waning in your passion for the greatness of God, you have a Bible you can read. Plead with God to open it up and to let you see it in color. Plead with God. Say, God, I, I, I want to see, see your glory. Almost every time that happens in my life, and I, and I pray that, he doesn't give me a fire show in the sky. He opens himself up in the Bible. And so open up your Bible. He is incomparably holy and worthy of our praise. The second thing is that we see here why we need to be telling people about Jesus is all people are sinful and therefore lost. They're all sinful and therefore lost. You see, we're never duly stunned at our sinfulness until we've contrasted ourselves not with other Christians or other sinners, but with God and his holiness. I want you to think back at a time when you were totally out of place. Okay, I don't know where it was, right? There's a time you, you went somewhere. It was a party. It was a work event. There was something happening and you, you showed up and you looked around and it looked like everyone else fit and you didn't, okay? Think of that feeling. I pray it's not, but maybe some of you are feeling that right now. Everyone here belongs here, but I don't belong here. First of all, I want you to know you do belong here. We're glad you're here. But that feeling of panic when you're in a place and you think, I, I shouldn't be here. Uh, what's my exit strategy? Okay. On that mission trip, that, that, now, hopefully I'm not going to take this too far away from the glories of Isaiah 6, but on the mission trip that I was on, that first one where the Lord took away my speech impediment, on the way to Africa, something happened. Uh, I was in an airport in Europe, and I had to use the restroom, and so I uh, ran into the restroom. I didn't see anybody, went into one of the stalls, and all of a sudden, I hear a bunch of women's voices. I'm like, oh, man. This is not good. I'm, look, I'm, I'm thinking, exit strategy. Okay, what happens if there's always somebody here? Like, my, you know, my first thought, well, I'm just going to wait till everyone leaves. Well, it's a public, it's, a, it's an airport. I mean, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, literally, I'm just, I'm, I'm standing in the stall. 
And all of a sudden, I hear all, all this, I don't hear, I don't hear any voices at all. And I think, well, it could be really embarrassing, though, if somebody's there. And so, literally, I kind of bent down. I, look, I was looking for shoes. I was like, is there, is there any shoes around here? I didn't see any shoes. So I got up, and I literally ran out of the bathroom. And right there, there's 15 people, all my friends on the mission team. They're all laughing at me. They watched the whole thing. I, you, you are not friends, you know? You, you, you cruel people. But all of us know that feeling of panic when you're at a place and you know you shouldn't be at that place and you want to get out of that place. Now, to a more significant scale than being in the wrong restroom, right, is Isaiah. He's in this environment and all of a sudden he notices something is out of place. Specifically, someone shouldn't be there. The problem is it's him. So the first thing out of his mouth is, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm lost. You know, the Bible describes a lost person as spiritually blind or dead spiritually, an object of wrath. It's interesting that that human beings are the only created being that accelerates when they're lost. I want you to think about this for a second. This is why he says, look, be still and know that I'm God. Stop your striving. Recognize I'm near. When we're detached from God, what happens is he says we're spiritually lost. And people, we accelerate when we're lost. That's why when, like, if you're in your car and you're literally lost, isn't it interesting that you drive faster when you're lost in order to find a place you don't know where it's at, you know? But we do the same thing spiritually. When we're lost spiritually, what happens is, is that we're more reckless We accelerate our life. Even as believers, when we're detached from a close relationship from the Lord, we live randomly. We invest in all kinds of things that are not important. And so God says, no, come back here. Come back here. Isaiah says, I am lost. You see, every created being has always responded in perfect obedience to God's bidding until we get to mankind. Throughout the scriptures, we see wind and snow and animals and, 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 and all kinds of everything. God's saying, go and do this. And ravens go and do that. Go and do this. And a fish swims over here. and Snow falls here and rain falls here. And then we get to human beings. We're the only ones created in the image of God. And the only ones who looked God in the face and said no. And that is the essence of sin. Is God says, this is how to live. And we say no. No. Everyone in this room has done that. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. You see, once Isaiah stopped consoling himself by comparing him to other people and started comparing himself and contrasting himself to the holiness of God, he knew that he was doomed. And he says, Woe is me. And one of the great realities of why we have to be telling people about Jesus is because every single person on the face of this earth, from every nation on this earth, is going to one day say, woe is me, at least one time before God. Everyone who's ever been born will say, woe is me, 
before God. It will either be at the point of conversion where we recognize our sin and we say, God, I'm a sinner. Would you save me by Jesus? Or it will be when they stand before God in judgment and they say, woe is me. And this is why we have a responsibility and a privilege to go and to tell Jesus said it this way. Matthew chapter five, verse 48 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, Jesus puts some pretty high standards on who gets to go to heaven. He says, it's the perfect people who get to go to heaven. Morally, spiritually perfect before him. So what hope do any of us have? Number three that you see in this text is that Jesus is a merciful savior. And that is the only hope that we have. You see, what we're told is that Isaiah, once he's acknowledged his sin and says, woe is me, I'm a sinner. It says that God sent one of the seraphs. He grabbed a, grabbed a coal that was burning just as they're burning. A lot of fire in Isaiah 6. And touched his lips. And it says that your guilt has been removed and you have, your sin has been atoned for. You see, you have to ask the question, how does a righteous judge acquit the guilty and remain righteous? And the answer is, he can't unless he makes the guilty people perfect. Until he makes them righteous and then he can declare them righteous. And Isaiah's cleansing in Isaiah 6 was symbolic of what was coming and and the reality for all of us that even he proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 53 when he said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You see, our guilt before God will prove to be devastating to us if we do not discover the reality of justification by faith. And what that means is this, is that after we said no to God, God sent Christ from heaven to earth and he cast perfect obedience to the law. It says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he was morally and spiritually perfect on the earth. He was the perfect one. And then he died for the sins of mankind. He was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead and then he extended to the world an invitation to you and me an invitation. And that's this. If you would believe in me, it says repent and believe in Jesus and his righteousness. Then it says that God takes away our sin and gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a substitution. There's a exchange that takes place. And this is called justification. It's when God now, after he's given us the perfect righteousness of his son, looks upon us and as judge declares us innocent. He says, you're one of the perfect ones. Romans chapter eight, verses three and four says this. It says that what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled fully in us. In other words, for those of you who know Jesus Christ and he's taken away your sin and he's given us his righteousness, he looks upon us as if all of the righteous requirements of the law of God had been fulfilled in you. Isn't that amazing? This is is the message to tell. But the fact is, is a lot of us still struggle with assurance. 
What assurance it is to know in the midst of our imperfections, even after trusting Christ, that our righteousness is not inside of us, it's outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a man named John Bunyan, who's now with the Lord, but he wrote a lot of great stuff, and he struggled with the assurance of salvation because after faith in Christ, he would sin, and he'd go, wait a minute, how in the world could I continue to do this and still be a believer, still be a Christian if he's literally changed my heart? And then he wrote this. He goes, one day I saw with the eyes of my soul that Christ was at the right hand of God, the Father. And there was my righteousness. So that wherever I was on the earth, God could not say of me, nor would he say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness was sitting just beside him. And there I saw that it was not my good behavior that made my righteousness any better before God, nor my bad behavior that made my righteousness any worse before God, because my righteousness was Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so he says, now does those chains fall off my legs. If you as a believer in Christ do not come to grips But the reality that your righteousness before God is not inside of you. It's outside of you in the person of Jesus Christ who lives within you, of course. But you will literally spend the rest of your Christian life suffering problems of assurance. We are right with God only because of the mercy of God in giving us his righteousness. And if you've never trusted Christ, I would plead with you this morning. What are you going to do with your sin problem before God? You say, well, I'm really working hard to, to, to be good. Listen, you stack up all of your righteous deeds with one sin and you're still imperfect. And Jesus said, you must be perfect to get to heaven because he's holy, holy, holy. This is news that has to be told. So we get to number four, as we as believers have good news to tell. God says, who shall I send and who will go? And Isaiah says, well, here I am. You need to send me. What he's saying is this is worth telling. See, some people think that evangelism is really arrogant and presumptuous, in particular in a world that says, well, it's all the same. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 45, verse five. It says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And besides me, there is no God. Now, if this verse is not true, then evangelism is both arrogant and presumptuous. But if indeed there is one Lord and there is no other and there is no other God but him and he's the only one that deals with our sin problem, then evangelism is not arrogant or presumptuous. It's kind and noble. You see, we must tell people because people only have enough information to condemn themselves. Romans chapter one says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God is saying, I have placed enough clues in the world that point to my reality and therefore you're without excuse, but they need to hear. And so Paul said, look, blessed are those who have feet of good news who go with the gospel. 
We have the gospel that can save people. The news about the greatness of God. A year later from that mission trip, I went back to Zimbabwe, Africa. And I went longer. This time I went for six months. And for two of those months, I partnered with a man, um, a pastor there in Zimbabwe, and who spoke English as well, which was wonderful. And, uh, and, we, and, and we went door to door every day. We'd just go door to door sharing the gospel with people. And, and it was just a, a remarkable uh, time. And there was one, fa- one, one family that we went to. It was a family of five. There was a, a mom and dad and three, and three um, kids, uh, probably in their teens, something like that. And, uh, and so we shared the gospel through the translator and they all come to faith in Christ. We're there for several hours and all five of them, they all trust Christ. And there we are, we're celebrating and we're, and we're just, we're, 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 we're I mean, thanking each other and, and, and praying and, and just saying, this is such an amazing thing. It was so encouraging. And then all of a sudden, one of the most devastating things someone has ever said to me in my life was said to me. I look over and I see the dad and all of a sudden he turns from joyous to solemn and he's just looking. And I promise you, this, this literally happened. This, he said this. And I said, what are you thinking? And this is what he said. He goes, why didn't you come sooner? You've had this. Why didn't you come tell us sooner? I didn't have an answer. We have that message. And what a privilege it is for us not to write the message, not to ensure that its recipients believe or respond, but that they get it. And so what a privilege that we have. So if you would, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel that saved us. We thank you for your greatness, for your honor, for your glory. We acknowledge that. God, we confess to you our sin. And we thank you for the gift of the gospel that we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We do have news to tell. And this week, I pray, God, that you would be merciful to us and that you would provide us opportunities, that you would give us boldness and wisdom to share what we know is true. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our sin. And I pray, God, for those who are here this morning who have never trusted Christ. God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you use this passage or another, Lord, to to show them the greatness of Jesus Christ and the reality of their sinfulness? Would you help them to believe in Jesus and be saved? We do love you, and it's a great privilege now to continue to worship you in song, not only in song, but also with our giving. So, Lord, as we give, we pray that you would take these offerings and that you would use them to expand the name of Jesus Christ around the world, to to bring Jesus' glory in the ministry that takes place from them. So would you do exceedingly more than all we can ask or imagine? We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.